any of you ever used one of these before? Combination lock? Anybody? Anybody ever had a locker? <laughs> ever had one just to, anybody ever had one just play with? You know, combination locks are interesting. Anybody ever have a combination lock and forget the combination? Or does anybody remember the combination of a combination lock you had decades ago and it's still vivid in your mind right now? Anybody? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Even though you haven't touched a combination lock in 50 years, maybe it's still there. But, you know, you have to dial in the right combination. Otherwise, the thing won't open. It'll just stay locked. And you try again, and you try to reset the thing, and you go... Okay, there, you have to go left, you have to go the other direction for a little while, and you try to get it just right on the right dial, and then maybe you'll get it open. And if you get it open, you feel good, but then it pops back in, and you got to reset the thing, and nobody can remember it. You accidentally toss the piece of paper that was in the package that, when you bought it, and you don't remember the combination anymore. But, you know, a lot of times in relationships, sometimes we feel like, the words we use are combinations, maybe, to unlock different moods of the person we're in the moment with, where you know that if you turn the combination or you say that one word, that's going to trigger them and reset the whole thing, and you've got to start over again to unlock the combination to a good mood for that day. Don't raise your hand, some of you. I saw some of you, some of the wives in the room looked at your husbands right there. <laughs> some of the husbands were keeping their eyes straight forward because they knew they didn't want to respond to that one. Uh, but it feels like sometimes, and not just in spousal relationships, but you know if you say certain things uh, maybe with your kids or in other relationships, and you don't say other certain things, that you might unlock a good mood for the day. And so you try to say certain things, certain words, the right words, the right tone to unlock maybe a good mood for that day. Now, the trouble becomes, well, first off, that, that is trouble, <laughs> If we require somebody to say a certain combination of words to make us be in a right mood for the day, that's a problem on us. We have to watch ourselves in that. But the problem becomes when we do that with God and we feel like we have to say a certain combination of words in order to unlock the answer to prayer we want from God. Now, maybe you don't do this, but there's been times in, in my Christian life I've done that. You say, well... I have to use a word that's big enough to, to justify God saying yes, or, or I, ha I have to uh, uh, position my body and just have to kneel down, or I have to lay down, or I have to stand, I got to raise my hand, I got to say the words in this particular order, or say his name this many times, or quote this many different scriptures in order for God to say yes, because if I don't do the right combination, he's not going to say yes. Maybe we don't articulate that verbally, but sometimes in our own brains, we think that, right? We think subconsciously, well, I've got to, to, to say it just right in order for God to, to give me what I'm asking for. But that's not really the way God works. He's not waiting on, on you know, pins and needles, waiting for you to get the right Oh, you missed it by one. The number was three, and you got two. You just missed it, man. You don't get it today. You got to try again tomorrow. Use a bigger SAT word, and maybe, just maybe, I'll hand you what you're asking for. But that's not the way God works when it comes to prayer, when it comes to asking God for different things in our lives. And Jesus speaks to this exact issue in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This is on... Page 811, if you're using a Bible on the rack. It's also on our website, thequeen.church. You can find all the notes and everything. It'll be on the screen um, there as well. You see, because when approaching God isn't a matter of, of nailing down the right phrases and the right words. It's approaching God is a heart issue. And you can come with big, huge, fat words. You can come with little, tiny, two-letter words. You can just come to God with no words. Because approaching God is a heart issue. And Jesus speaks right to this because these people he's speaking to have been taught something different. And there are many in our culture who 
100% believe I have to say this exact phrase in this exact order this many number of times in order to make God happy with me. But Jesus says that's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. Jesus said, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Now that, 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 that phrasing there, um, what does he say? Empty phrases, that literally means meaningless words. Don't say words that you don't mean. Don't have any meaning behind them that isn't some form of transparency of your heart. Don't even utter them. Uh, and he says Gentiles there, speaking to a mainly Jewish audience, he's talking about people who do not follow God, people who do not believe uh, in God's purposes but sometimes we do have that ingrained within us, that ingrained superstition within us to say a certain combination of words, specific repetition, special inflections in our voice in how we speak uh, that will persuade the heart of God. Or if we get the wording right, then he will be forced to do what we want. Jesus says this isn't what you do when you pray. Look at verse 8. He said, do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. He, he already knows. He already knows what we need before we pray for it. He already knows what we need. And so trying to throw up big, you know, huge, out-of-character words. Now, if you use huge words all the time, then by all means, use that in your prayer. But if you're just throwing up big words because you think it makes God happier with you, then cut that mess out. That's not the way... God is. There's no need to use a whole bunch of lofty words because God already knows your heart and he already knows your needs. He listens not because of the words that we utter. He listens through love because he desires to hear from us. Fancy complications are not needed because God already knows the real me. A lot of times we throw up fancy words and you know, uh, big, high, and lofty phrases in our various conversations, or even as we pray, maybe publicly, maybe in small group, maybe in front of other people, because we want other people to think certain things. God says, Jesus is God. He's saying, you don't need to say those kind of things. Just be you in your prayers. We see that even in David in the Psalms. He was being him when he complained to God. I'm not saying it's okay to complain to God. Job complained to God, and God said, okay, where were you when I made the world? <laughs> but he was being transparent with God, and God corrected him in the moment. It's better to be transparent and allow God to move us where he desires to move us than to be fake with God, and, and God then have to break through the fake walls we've built up before he gets to the real us, because he already knows the real us. He made us, and he knows who we really are. I should speak with God as though I'm speaking with someone that I've known for a very long time. You know, we've all got friends that we've known for a long time. And sometimes we even have shorthand in the way we speak with those friends. Like they, they can just tell by body language, they can tell by the way we maybe say the word thee, that there's something else going on. That the way we communicate with somebody who know, who's known us for a long time is different than the way we communicate with a brand new friend. I mean, I can tell you, there, there's people I've known for decades and decades. I can go home to, to Houston and see one of those guys that uh, I hung out with, in, you know, when I was a lot younger. Guys who could come here and tell you guys some stories, I'll tell you what. Uh, one of my best friends from back then, a guy named Joe, Joe Piper, and he can know when something's wrong because we spent so much time together way back when. Back before, I had the wherewithal to put up walls and, and the fakeness and, and uh, 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 perception that wanting to give off. And what Jesus is trying to get to the people listening and to us is that God has been with us this whole time. He knew us way back when. He knows us now. 
He knows our ins and outs. He knows what we're really thinking that we don't want anybody else to see what we're really thinking. He knows that and he still loves us and he still sticks with us. And so we should speak to God as though he has known us for a long time because he really has. And prayer is that. It, it's, a, it's a conversation. You see, prayer is a conversation with an old friend who is almighty. Prayer is a conversation with an old friend who is almighty. We're going to chop that definition down a little bit. You see, prayer is a conversation. Paul wrote to pray continuously in 1 Thessalonians 5. Pray continuously. It, prayer isn't just a monologue, isn't just a soliloquy. It's a com- we speak, God speaks, and we listen. It's back and forth conversation that's ongoing. That's why Paul said pray continuously. Don't let amen be the hang-up on your prayer. It's supposed to continue in how you conversate with the Almighty because he's always with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. But he's also an old friend. Now, this is absolutely biblical. Some that may may make you uncomfortable to think of of the Almighty as a friend or Jesus as a friend. But uh, in Scripture, Abraham was called a friend of God. Moses was called a friend of God. It said that Moses spoke to God face to face as though one speaks to a friend. Jesus himself called his own disciples friends. He says, because you know and follow the plans of God, you are not servants but friends. That's in uh, John, yeah, John 15. Jesus said, his followers, his disciples, us included, we have the teachings of Jesus just as they had the teachings of Jesus are friends of God, friends of God. But our friendship with God is different than our friendship with other people here on earth because God, like in the last part of that verse, is almighty. So we can't downgrade God's power or God's level of influence to the level that we have with our friends because we don't know God in the same way he knows us. We can spend our entire lives uh, just... Not doing anything, but trying to unpack scripture, trying to read more scripture, trying to digest more scripture, and pray constantly, and we still would not have even scratched the surface of the depth and power of God. And yet, we still need to pursue that and grow in that, because as we grow in him and learn more about him, we grow more personally as well, and stronger personally as well. And so prayer needs to be a conversation with an old friend who is almighty, needs to be with an old friend in the way we communicate in transparency because he already knows. It says, he knows your needs before you ask him. Even when we ask in greed, selfishly. Sometimes even when I ask in greed, he may answer to my need rather than my greed. He may answer my prayer in a way that I need him to answer it rather than the way I want him to, in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, and honestly, in his grace. Because if God answered my prayers oftentimes in the way that I ask, my life would be all kinds of screwed up right now. If, I, if God had given me everything that I prayed for, the moment that I prayed for it, in the way that I prayed for it, then it would be a life based upon what I wanted and not based upon what he wanted. And that would be totally a wrong way to live. And so God knows what you need before you ask him. So pursuing his heart helps us to not just ask better, but live better. And then what Jesus does next is he kind of gives an outline of prayer. But again, here's the difficulty, because we're human and we do this with everything, is we want to take these next few verses and create a formula for prayer, a formula, a combination to be unlocked. But that's not the way it was meant. These next few verses were not meant to be a formula, were not meant to be a combination to be unlocked. This is a pattern that's meant to be a heart adjustment for ourselves in how we pray. These elements should be in our prayers. We can pray this actual prayer. We can pray this. But 
It's meant to adjust our hearts so that we can approach the throne of God as he designed it to be approached with these things in mind. We're going to read these next verses, and then we're going to back up and digest each little section there. You'll see on your, blank, on, on your bulletin there, there's blanks for each little section. We're going to chop that up and see what he's talking about. So in talking about prayer, verse 9, this is, he, he says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Those last two verses aren't part of the prayer he gives, but they are tacked on there, and they are very important to the purpose of what he's saying. So let's start right up at, back up at the beginning, verse 9. Jesus said, pray then like this. So pray then like this. So not in vain repetition, not in throwing up words that mean nothing, that have nothing to do with transparency of heart. He says, rather pray like this. Our Father in heaven, address the Father. Address him. He is the Father. He is God. He is the Almighty. Put his name embedded in your heart in how you approach him. Address the Father. He says, hallowed be your name. This is praise. Hallowed means holy. Holy. Praise. So, he just addressed the Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy is your name. So even in the address, in calling the name of God, he's saying, even the name I just said is infinitely holy, is infinitely holy, which honestly, I love, there's a, there's a lot of, I mean, scripture is filled with great things, um, but in the Hebrew, the name for God is, impr is impronounceable there's no vowels in it there's no vowels in it in order to make it pronounceable they took the vowels from another name for God and put it on the name for God so that we could say it Yahweh say Yahweh you can't pronounce it in Hebrew because there's no vowels they took the vowels from the word for Lord and tacked it on that word so we could say it it's just it's four consonants in Hebrew to, to emphasize the fact that God's name is so holy and so powerful, our words can't even function right to emphasize how great he is. And so here in, in this prayer, Jesus is saying, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your name is so holy, so holy. The idea is Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and the words that come out of my mouth don't even make it appropriate for me to speak to your holiness. If we honestly, if we were honest with ourselves and really just sat down to try to meditate on the holiness of God, our brain would like implode. Because we don't know perfection in this world. We don't, everything we know in this world is imperfect. Imperfect, everything. And so to be confronted with the absolute holy perfection of God is overwhelming. And so trying to communicate that in praise shouldn't, shouldn't just be one line in a prayer. It should be a lifestyle of how we interact with others, of how we walk about this life. I was listening to a song this morning on the way to church the old song, and the song was speaking about, uh, the main line of the song was, this is the moment for worship. And the whole gist of it was, when I wake up and see my wife, this is the moment for worship. When I go and, and help get my kids ready for school, this is the moment for worship. When I go to work and do what I need to do, this is the moment for worship. The idea is, worship isn't just, you know, 20 minutes of singing and 35, 40 minutes of preaching. Worship is a lifestyle of how we're supposed to live in this life, praising God at every juncture and opportunity. So, holy is your name. So, offering God address in how we speak to him, offering him praise. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your kingdom come. This is humility, humility. 
the coming of God's kingdom rather than the building of my own. This one's hard, y'all. The coming of God's kingdom rather than the building of my own. Because what we're taught, particularly in American culture, is build your own kingdom. Build your bank account, build your job, build your clout, build your reputation, uh, uh, look out for number one, make everything better for you. It's all about you and making, it, making everything exceptional. But this idea of your kingdom come, it's his kingdom above my own. And Jesus was asked, I mean, by his disciples in Acts chapter 1, when will your kingdom come? But even before they asked, a year or so before that, the Pharisees asked Jesus, okay, when's the kingdom of God going to come? This is in Luke chapter 17. And you know what Jesus told them? Jesus told the Pharisees there in Luke 17, he said, the kingdom of God is among you. What he's saying is that the king is present. So the kingdom is already here. So your kingdom come, this is the the principle here, is that God's presence in me, the spirit in me, the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus, his kingdom has arrived. Am I willing to follow his direction in his kingdom rather than building my own? Even if it makes me uncomfortable with what my future looks like, even if it makes me uncomfortable with relationships I may have. If giving into his kingdom means surrendering a lot of what's going on in me, then I must do it. And so this prayer, your kingdom come, is a willingness to say, I need you more than I need me. It's, it's giving up of what I have and what I've accumulated and what I desire in order to replace it with what God has and what God desires. Your kingdom come, rather than me building my own kingdom. Which ties into the next part of the verse. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is surrendering to God's plan rather than my own. Your will be done in my life on earth just as it is in heaven. Surrendering to God's plan rather than my own. God's plan rather than my own. You see, God's plan in heaven, anyone confronted with the physical revelation of the the power of God, as you will be in heaven, cannot help but follow the will of God, cannot help but praise the power of God. But here we have this veil of, you know, physicality, in between us and actually seeing God. I mean, if we saw God bodily, our you know, very existence would explode because his glory is so powerful. But your will be done here as it is in heaven. And so the implication is we can choose not to follow God's will right now. We can choose not to follow it. And oftentimes, I do choose not to follow it. But he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will. I'm, I need to, God, help me surrender to your plan rather than, than, than making my own plans and following those. God, help me surrender to your plan. Okay, are you catching a theme here in the, the, the prayer, praying to God, praying, having a conversation with God? It's all about God. Humility, surrender, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. This is provision. Provision for the immediate, which means daily trust, daily trust, daily faith in the power of God rather than trusting in my own planning. You see, he said Give us this day our daily bread. Don't give us this day our bread for tomorrow. Give us this day our daily bread. It's the image of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, having to trust God when they woke up the next morning that there would be food on the ground for them to eat. God told them, if you keep the food that I'm giving you to tomorrow, it's going to get moldy and it's going to hurt you. You know, It's going to make you very sick. So don't eat it tomorrow. 
I'm going to give you what you need to eat for the very day that you are alive. But if you hoard it and keep it for tomorrow, it's going to mess everything up. So trust me for today. And, and the thing is, a lot of us don't do that, right? I mean, we, we hoard a lot of things for tomorrow and plan for tomorrow. I mean, we should make plans and we should think in that way. But if God changes those plans, we should be willing to follow those plans. I had one guy call it, you need to be super Gumby, always flexible and wherever God wants you to go. Some of you under 40 didn't quite get the Gumby reference. That's what Google's for. But you need to go and you need to follow where God has you and what God wants for you. Give us this day our daily bread. Provide for us and help me to trust in your provision. Verse 12. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. This is an admission or admitting a need for forgiveness. Acknowledging that I need forgiveness. Not acting as though, you know, I've got it all together or everything is, is perfect and, you know, everything is awesome. But admitting that I need forgiveness. Forgive us. And I notice also throughout this entire passage of Scripture, it's always a collective pronoun. Our Father. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. We should be praying together and not just alone. We should pray alone, yes, absolutely. He speaks about that as well uh, uh, earlier in the passage. But here, when he gives the illustration of the Lord's Prayer, he's saying it as though we're supposed to pray together for each other. So forgive us our debt, admitting that we need forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So this is a strength to forgive. God, we need strength to forgive. God, that person did that thing, and, and it's constantly in my mind, and I can't get it out. God, I need strength to forgive. I have received your forgiveness. I need the strength to give it just as much as I have been a recipient of it. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, this is guidance. Lead us not into temptation. Help us to follow your guidance, God, where you want us to go. God doesn't want us to fall into temptation. God doesn't want us to, to sin. God wants to guide us and lead us in the direction he has for us. So lead us not to follow God's guidance and deliver us from evil deliverance, praying that God would deliver us Del bring us salvation, bring us freedom, bring us liberty. Deliver us from evil situations, evil circumstances. So address, praise, humility, surrender, provision, admitting, admission, uh, uh, strength, guidance, deliverance. Now, some of us, what we want to do, what I, you know, want to do sometimes is create a checkbox, even subconsciously in my mind when I start to pray. Okay, I need to make sure I've got all of those things in my prayer. Here we go. Dear God, address, check. You are holy, check. Got praise. God, uh, I need your kingdom to come and not build. I need to follow you. God, I, I need to be, uh, uh, you know, we don't want to pray, God, you know, humble me because we know what's coming after that one, but we want to pray in a, in a humble fashion. Check, got that one. And so we, we subconsciously even at times create this formula in how we pray or what we want to do when he presents us with this. When he says pray like this, we want to make it a formula, but that's not how he meant it to be taken. It's supposed to direct our heart in how we approach him. And he gives this instruction at the end of the prayer that is associated with the prayer. Verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's people who've sinned against you, people who've done, who have, have offended you. You see, proof of having received real forgiveness is a willingness to give forgiveness. 
proof of having received real forgiveness from Jesus is a willingness to give forgiveness. He doesn't say it's going to be easy, you see there. He doesn't say, oh, it's easy. No big deal. Just throw out forgiveness, you know, just giving it away like it's not, nothing. It's easy. Just for, it's not. Forgiveness is hard. Right? Can I get an amen on that one? Forgiveness is hard. It's difficult. Some people, we don't want to forgive. Some people, not that we want to wish them into hell, but we want something bad to happen to them. We won't kill them, but something, maybe break the legs. God. Just, just, you know, we don't want, you know, but for, if we have received the forgiveness of God, it ought to pour out of us, even to the difficult people, the ones who offend us and insult us and sin against us over and over and over and over again. Because if you look at it from God's, God's perspective, I have done the same to him. And he, he, he offered forgiveness, not just in a case-by-case -case basis, but he offered so much forgiveness in one moment with the death of Jesus that it covered everything. Every, it's like a blank forgiveness check. They just take it. And I forgive everything. The stuff you're going to do this afternoon, you're going to lose your cool this afternoon because you're tired and you're hungry and, and because you're just irrit irritable. I've already forgiven it. Already forgiven it. Already forgiven. If we've received real forgiveness, we need to be willing to give forgiveness. Now, he mentions this with prayer here, which is fascinating. And it's hard sometimes to understand God's level of forgiveness. I mean, Jesus gave an illustration um, in a parable one time. Uh, I think it's in, later on in Matthew, maybe Matthew 18, somewhere in there, Matthew 17. Don't hold me to that. It's one of those. It's somewhere in there. Um, I believe it's Matthew 18. Uh, Jesus gave a parable about a king who had some servants. One servant owed the king like a billion dollars, just an astronomical amount of money. And he owed the king this much money, and he came in. The king called him in to get, collect the debt. Imagine if you owed the government a billion dollars in back taxes. You'd be running, hiding somewhere, like in Brazil, you know, trying to, in the backwood, maybe in the Amazon, just trying to get away. But this guy owes the king a billion dollars. King calls him in. He comes in, and the king forgives the debt, says, you owe me nothing. Owe me nothing. All the anxiety that would have been weighing on him from that massive debt is no longer there. And so that servant walks out of the throne room of the king, and the very next thing he does, he sees another servant who owes him 20 bucks. And he goes over and starts beating this guy to a pulp. Give me my $20. Having just been forgiven his billion, he starts beating this guy up saying, give it to me. Because I don't have 20 bucks. I came to work without lunch because I didn't have enough money to buy it at the cafeteria. I don't have any money. And he says, well, I'm going to Get the debt collectors, and we're going to throw you in prison until you can pay me back. Well, the other servants standing around in Jesus' parable see this, go back and tell the king, and they drag that first servant back in before the king. And he says, because you refuse to forgive that guy his small debt, I'm placing your full debt back on you. And we'll put you in debtor's prison and make you work for the rest of your life to pay off your billion dollars, which was a death sentence. Because if you don't offer forgiveness, maybe we have never received it. That is what Jesus is saying. Because Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, we need to forgive each other as God forgave us. It's hard and it's difficult. And it, sometimes it is a process that takes years. It's not sometimes an instantaneous deal. It's a process of forgiveness that you work towards. The closer you get to God, the more forgiveness is poured out on that massive offense from years ago. But in the process, as long as you're moving in the right direction, making progress in the process, even if the pace is not what you might desire it to be, as long as you're making progress in the process, moving the direction God wants you to move, you're following his will and what he de desires in you. But offering that forgiveness. So, but looking at this section here as a whole, 
He gave us, he, he said, don't pray like people who throw up meaningless words. Instead, pray like this, and he gives us an illustration. And then he talks about forgiveness, though, there at the end. Why do you think he, he draws out just one section of the prayer for special emphasis? And he talks about, in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And he kind of, you know, takes a deep dive there into what forgiveness is about there in verses 14 to 15. Why do we have this section about prayer, but also a section about forgiveness? Why, why does he emphasize that there? Because prayer is built on forgiveness. Prayer is built on forgiveness. Prayer as communication with God is only possible because of forgiveness. Prayer as a communication with the almighty God, creator of everything, is only possible because he forgave. We, as imperfect people, cannot get near perfection. Because if imperfection gets near perfection, perfection is imperfect. And God can't be imperfect. So that was our problem. We're imperfect, God's not, and we can't get near God to talk to God because we're imperfect. And so God sent Jesus who died and rose from the dead, and his death and resurrection made us like Jesus from the perspective of God. Perfect. Because he has forgiven all of the imperfection, even the ones we have yet to do. They're already forgiven. And so because of that forgiveness, we can then have communication with God who is absolutely perfect. Forgiveness is the foundation of prayer. And as we begin to pray and begin to experience this relationship on the level God has designed us to experience it, through prayer, through communication, in, in investing the time to pray throughout our day on a consistent basis, it begins to develop us and begins to change us. But sometimes we get tired of it. Maybe sometimes there's something maybe you have prayed for for a while and nothing has happened from your perspective. Maybe you've tried to unlock something like a combination, and, and it hasn't happened. Or maybe you've been praying for one specific thing for like 25 years, and you're tired of praying for it again. You're ti- you, you almost inwardly groan when you pray for it every day because you think, well, I've been praying and, you know, forever, and nothing's happened. Maybe there's that thing that you've been praying for for a long time and you feel like nothing has happened in that area on that issue. Maybe it's the, the, the lifestyle of a family member or the uh, salvation of a friend and you've been praying for it forever and ever and you're like, man, when is this thing gonna, gonna happen? I'm gonna celebrate so big, God, because I've been praying, but I really don't think it's gonna happen today. <laughs> Because I've been praying, and I've been, I've been praying for 15,000 days, and nothing has happened, and here we are, and, and, and I'm praying again. Not really believing, but just saying it, because that's what I do. I say it. Don't raise your hand, but anybody ever feel that way? Just something continually praying and going after. Or maybe there's something you've been wanting to pray for, but you've been afraid to pray for it because you feel like it's too big for what God can do. Now we know, oh, God can do everything. I know there's nothing too big for God. But maybe there's something going on that he has been speaking into you that you've been afraid to speak in prayer because you feel like it's too big. It's too big of a request, too big of an ask. And you don't want to go there. You don't want to pray it because... You feel like if, if you pray it and you say it and he doesn't do it, it will damage your faith. But again, if he already knows your needs and he already knows your heart, then why not just speak it anyway? Pray it anyway. God can do phenomenal things. Phenom- hey, Katie, will you hand me that notebook right there? There's a new practice that I've been doing this year. I don't, you, can, you can keep my pen. That's how much I love Katie. It's a special pen. I don't let anybody handle my pen because I've don't. i had people, I've loaned it to people and it disappears. And Walmart doesn't sell this pen anymore. So, special pen, but I let my wife hang, handle my pen. Uh, 
I've, I've been keeping a journal of different thoughts. Uh, I've got different sections in my OCD. I even had the pages numbered and indexed at the front. Um, just trying to offload things in my brain because, as you know, you put too much in your brain, you just forget other things. So I try to put, if I think something, okay, well, that goes in this section. I need to put that down because I'm going to forget it if I don't put it down. But I've got a section in here on prayer, prayer requests. And what I've tried to do um, is every single time I pray for something new, is write it down. I thought about this this past fall. We went through a Bible study with um, the leadership team and the deacons, and we studied got one, it, part of this. I, mean, I made them read a bunch of books. Uh, one of them was a guy named George Mueller, and uh, he had over, help me remember, guys, was like 30,000 prayers. 30,000, not just prayers, documented answers to prayer. And I was deeply challenged by that. And so I started writing down things I would pray for, and I wrote down... Uh, the, the person, I wrote down the need, and then I would write down the date I started praying. And then in the next column, I wrote down the date I got an answer. Now, I challenge you to do this. Just try it for a week or a few weeks, and you're going to be shocked. I was. What I was shocked was not just the, how often God answered, but how often God said yes. That's what really surprised me. I shouldn't have, I'm, I'm the pastor here. I mean, being transparent, y'all are going to fire me now. Being surprised, God said yes to some things. Um, but what I noticed, and I'll just show it to you. You can't read it. It's too small. My handwriting's terrible. Um, but what I noticed was, look over here in this column. I mean, there's a bunch of yeses. This is one I prayed, you know, what, yes, two days ago. He answered it on the day. Boom, yes. And I would write down a why. And you know what I noticed as well? There's not one no. There's a few that, that haven't gotten answers yet, but we're still working on that. And I've got a, you know, a few from a few pages before as well, but that's what really surprised is how often God says yes. And I wasn't aware of it because I didn't write it down. I had a great wise man tell me one time, if it's not written down, it's not because you're going to forget it. And so what this allows me to do in seeing this, I'm, it's something, you know, I, I'm not always great at it. I try to be good at it. I'm not. Um, I've been doing it now for a month and a half or so, two months. Um, but is it helps me as I, as I go through this to see, to praise God for what he has done and to continue to pray for what has yet to be done. But it also keeps me mindful of particular people I'm praying for every day when I see that person, ask them about that issue. Pray for them in the moment about that issue. There's one on here. I've, I've prayed for this person in the produce section at Walmart about their issue because it's in the forefront of my mind because I'm always there. I'm not saying this to say I'm, I'm, I'm telling you I'm terrible at it. That's why there's only so many over the last couple months here. Um, but it's a discipline I was challenged by, by hearing about this guy, George Mueller, who kept the discipline up, you know, just phenomenally. And he saw God I mean, this, I mean, we saw in the, I mean, if you've ever read this, it's the only biography I know of on George Mueller, but it talked about how, I mean, he prayed that God would lift fog, and God lifted fog, and as a result, a guy he was with got saved, because the guy saw God do this thing he prayed for. He saw, I mean, he prayed just things that we would not have the boldness to pray, he prayed for. He ran an orphanage that housed thousands of kids. And they did not know where their breakfast the next day was going to come from. They got up in the morning and set the table with nothing in the pantry, nothing in the fridge, and prayed for breakfast. He didn't pray. He had the kids pray. And, <laughs> and this is just one of the stories. Some of you have heard this story. Before, as they sat down to pray, bowed their heads, knock on the door. It's the baker in town. Said, hey, God woke me up at 2 a.m. this morning to bake bread for you guys. God provided bread. They still hadn't prayed yet, so they bowed their heads again to pray. And they hear a knock at the door. It's the milkman, back when they had milkmen. He said, my, my cart broke down outside, and all this milk's going to spoil. You think your kids could help me offload this, and, and y'all could have whatever you need? God provided milk and bread for breakfast when they woke up and had no, how, how How would you function if your bank account tomorrow was zero, and your pantry and your fridge had nothing in it, and you said, I don't know how, what I'm going to eat for 
food tomorrow and you wake up you set the table you go and you sit down to pray and you pray what jesus said there give us this day our daily bread and there's a knock at the door if we begin to live like that and pray like that in humility and independence and in faith and it becomes a habit it changes everything about who we are and about how we are having this dependence upon god and so Jesus is saying, we need to pray like that. And Jesus said later on in Matthew chapter 7, if you know how to give good gifts, how much greater does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts? Matthew 7.11. 7.11, you should remember that, right? 7.11. God knows how to give good, give good gifts. If, if, so pray for them, ask, and you shall receive. That's also Matthew chapter 7. Pray. Even the big things you're afraid, even the things you've been praying for, for years and years and years, pray, don't stop, grab somebody else. Remember the prayer that Jesus speaks of here in the Lord's Prayer isn't a singular person prayer, it is collective, we're praying it together. Grab somebody to pray it with you, join together in prayer, and where two or three are gathered together, there I am, Jesus said. Pray together take the big thing you've been afraid to ask or you've been giving the god the the you know the out uh, uh, clause in the contract god if it be your will and assuming that it's not his will uh, instead uh, of, of praying in perseverance not that we shouldn't pray in god's will we should absolutely pray in god's will but a lot of times we put that little phrase on the end of our prayer because we want to give god an out as though he needs it but pray in faith and pray collectively for the big thing. You have no idea how God's going to pull it off. Pray for it. Man, I've got one in here that I'm not even going to mention because I'm scared. Because it's a big one. I don't know how God's going to do it. But it was one of the first five I wrote down. It doesn't have a Y next to it yet. But I'm praying in faith. God's going to do this thing. God's going to do this thing. I'm going to celebrate when he does. And so that's what I'm asking you guys. What is the thing you need to pray for? Maybe God's been laying something on your heart about a particular person in your life that you need to pray for. Maybe God's been putting something on you. Maybe you need to pray something specific for our church that is unselfish. Maybe you need to pray something for our community. For absolute and complete, utter, massive boldness in how we communicate the message of God to our community. We want to see God move here? This is where it starts. You want to see God move in your family? Prayer. You want to see God move in the lives of your kids? Prayer. You want to see God change your community? It starts with prayer. It starts with prayer. With prayer. Even the small ones, even the simple ones. Not with big, high, lofty words, but prayer is where it starts. When there was a great evangelist back in the 1800s, and, and back then, when, you know, when there's no technology whatsoever, he was seeing thousands and thousands and thousands of people get saved. And he had a guy who would go into town with a small team uh, uh, several weeks before he came to preach, and they would just pray. That's all they did. They would get a room at uh, uh, like an inn, a little bed and breakfast, and they would lock themselves in the room and fast while they prayed. There was a story one time, they were up in this, in this town and they were praying, and uh, the lady who ran the boarding house, who ran the bed and breakfast, came to the evangelist, the preacher, and said, they rented the room, and I hear all this mumbling going on, and they haven't come out for two weeks. I think we need to send somebody in there to see if they're okay and not dying. And uh, the preacher said, no, they're fine. They're just praying. And on that guy's tombstone, on his tombstone, it says, the only thing it says his name, it says the date that he was born and died, and it says mighty in prayer. Mighty in prayer. I tell you, I've, I've said it before, there's a guy that is, I mean, one of the three, I think, greatest spiritual giants I've ever personally known in my life. He may be the singular greatest spiritual giant I've ever known personally. 
And you know what he told me? At the end of his life, I, I was meeting with him about once a month for a little, and then he died shortly thereafter. Uh, he, I asked him one time, if there's one thing you could do different your whole life, what's one thing? And he said, well, I'd pray more. I'd pray more. Which was extremely convicting to me. Like, well, man, I, if you need to pray more, then I definitely need to pray more. Prayer can change the world. Change it. And I've said this stat before as well. In marriage, the divorce rate is, give or take, 50-55%. You know what it is for a couple that prays together only twice a week? Less than 1%. Less than 1% because of prayer. Prayer changes lives. And so what, we're going to do something right now, and we're going to have another message in a few weeks on prayer, and I'll talk to you about that in a sec, but... I'm going to ask you, will you approach God in prayer today? Will you approach God in prayer? Maybe for the first time. Maybe you need to say, God, I need to believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And this needs to be your first time in approaching God and saying, accept me. Give me eternal life right now. And if you need to believe that, we want you to. We want you to know Jesus. We want you to experience heaven. Grab, come, I'll be here. Micah's back in the back. We got you going and coming. Come and find us. We want to pray with you. We want to celebrate with you your decision. But maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to come and you need to pray. You need to pray that uncomfortable, faith-filled, dangerous prayer about you, about your family, about your spouse, about your brother, about your sister, about your parents, about your kids, about our church. And you need to drop to your knees and pray like you've never prayed before for what God has yet to do through your willingness to follow along with him. Pray, pray. Our, I've asked our leadership team and our deacons are going to come and pray. They're going to pray, pray. I don't know what God's put on their heart to pray for, but they're going to pray. Not because they're better than anybody, but because if they're leadership, they should be leading in prayer. We should all be on our knees on a constant and consistent basis. So will you pattern your life after this prayer of Jesus? One of complete dependence on Almighty God.